Well, good morning. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the pastors here at Soul City Church. Thank you for multitasking. Uh, you're good talkers and good at passing blue buckets. Uh, you know, one of the things that I love around here and about our church is uh, how much we've seen God grow us and how we've seen uh, this church respond to God in generosity and giving. And so the reason we do that, just so you know, I mean, I think I know you're like, oh, they're doing a money series and that's why they're passing the buckets and all that kind of stuff. We do this every week, just so you know, if it's your first time, we don't just pass the buckets when we talk about money. Uh, we do this because it's like a, it's an act of worship for us. It's a way we say thanks to God. And we're going to get in depth into that in two weeks. We're going to get into what does it mean to really give back to God. But I want to let you know that's why we do that every week as part of our worship, because we have so many things to say thank you to God for. And this is just one of the ways that we respond to him. So thank you to those of you who give regularly, who give faithfully. And like I said, if that's going to be new to you or maybe you haven't done that, we're excited for you to be a part of this month as we dive into what it, you know, God's word about what it means to be money wise, to be wise when it comes to our resources. And I'll tell you, when I got my first paycheck, I did not have much wisdom when it came to my resources. I was 15 years old. And my parents were kind of like, hey, we've, been, we've loved, you know, buying you clothes all these years and all that kind of stuff. You're on your own now, essentially, to buy your own clothes. Like, if you want to wear your clothes that you want to wear, you have to pay for them, so you better get a job. So I got a job at D&D Cycles. And it was in the back of this warehouse district in San Leandro, California, back where someone could have killed me and no one would have known. Like, just back there, and I sanded down 10 speeds and mountain bikes by myself in a shed, breathing in highly toxic fumes for hours on end. And I, I kept trying to bring up child labor laws to them, but they weren't hearing it. And so I, I worked so hard at this place and worked with some very interesting characters. And I remember my first paycheck, you know, for working like 15 hours after taxes, which, by the way, no one told me about. I was, really, I, I was so upset. I'm like, what? no, this should be exactly what we said. I still get upset about that. But um, I had $48. I had a paycheck for $48. And I thought in that moment that capitalism had been invented just for me. I was so excited because I had money now. I had my own money now. This wasn't like allowance. This was my money that I breathed in toxic fumes to earn. Like I, and so this is what's so great. So in that moment, I'm not sure, Jeannie could have asked the question, what did you do with your first paycheck? What did you do with that first paycheck? Here's what I did. I went to Tower Records, and I bought an NXS cassette tape. <laughs> now, let me just hit pause for a second. That's three references that 80% of you have no idea about. <laughs> I want to start the message by acknowledging that I went to a place where they used to sell music, and it was cassettes. There was a band called NXS. They were great at one time. And so that's what I did. Like with my money, I went and got this cassette tape because I, I could do it because it was my money. And I was so excited to actually sort of, you know, be a part of, of earning my own money. I had my own bank account. I was a high roller. I had my own bank account. I had my own checkbook, which a 15-year-old with a checkbook, sure, that makes sense. And so I had a checkbook and I'd write checks for things for like $4 for chimichanga because I can because this is my checkbook. And so I, had, I finally had some money in the bank. I obviously had some new cassette tapes. I sort of like had it all. The only thing is, I finally had money, but, but I didn't have a plan. And I, I'm not sure what, what, you, what was going on in your life when you got that first paycheck, or maybe you got an allowance as a kid. Maybe you grew up in a home where it was taught or modeled to you what it means to be wise and responsible with your resources. Maybe you were, grew up in a home where that was really, you know, you watched your parents do that, then they taught it to you. 
but the majority of us, it would be safe to say, didn't have that. And so I finally had money. I just didn't have a plan. I had resources, but I had no wisdom. And it's a very, very dangerous thing when you have money, but you have no wisdom. And you could, if you were to be really honest, look to your own life and point that out. But all you really have to do is kind of look in our culture, and we have seen what can happen with people who have a great amount of money and a shortage of wisdom. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. It can take years and years and years to work through. And so here I am, 15 years old, I finally have it, and I realized early on, I wouldn't have been able to put words to it, that we live in a culture, and in fact, we have built a financial structure that actually is banking on me not having wisdom. It's really interesting if you stop to think about sort of the way our modern economy works. Our modern economy is banking on me to be that 15-year-old kid with money but no wisdom. You think about it. You think about every sort of credit card, every envelope that comes into your mailbox, shiny and happy pictures and great fonts, promising you a brand new credit card, all that kind of stuff. They are banking on you not having wisdom. That is, in fact, what keeps the credit card industry working and operating, is you and me lacking wisdom. In fact, they are banking on you being a fool with your money. That's how that whole industry was built. Have you ever noticed how, when it comes to your college loans, if, you, if those of you who still have some or have, you know, maybe you've had those before, uh, no one comes to your door with a baseball bat to break your legs to get the money back, right? There's no threatening note. They want you to just keep paying as long as possible. They're so kind about it and so nice about it. Why? Because they are banking on you being a fool and letting, letting it just grow and grow and accrue and accrue and be a burden on your back. That is benefit to them. It's amazing when you stop and think about it. Every advertisement that you see, if you were to really stop and think about this, every ad you see is banking on you being a fool. Because it really what they're advertising, every ad you see, every billboard you see, is selling you something that you don't actually need. Think about it. The things that you need, you take care of and get, don't you? You don't need someone to tell you to buy it. Oxygen. <laughs> they don't sell oxygen. But you don't, you don't need that because you, you, you already know that you need that. So you're going to take care of getting that. There are things in your life that you know you need that no ad is going to be able to sell you. The whole point of advertising is to convince you to be a fool with your money and to buy things that you don't actually need. See, we, we have in a very real way two sides to the coin. And on one side of the coin is a culture, is a modern financial structure that is banking on you being a fool. On the other side of the coin, however, there is a God who has poured out wisdom to you for free. Who has literally, literally, as Jeannie mentioned, spoken to, taught about, mentioned all throughout the Bible, over 800 verses about our finances, and what we can do with them, and what they do to us. And there's only a small percentage of them that actually have to do with giving them to God. And yet, for many of us, that's our biggest fear or our biggest resistance. God's wisdom on your finances is so generous that it applies to your life, whether you'd even call yourself a Christian or not. That you can take the principles that we're going to talk about today and over the next couple weeks, and you can find all throughout the scriptures and apply them to your life and actually see benefit and change Because God longs for you to be free when it comes to your finances. That's how generous God's wisdom is for you. That's how available 
God's wisdom is for you. Jesus talked more about money and what it does to us and what we can do with it more than he did about heaven or eternity or any of the hot-button issues that Christians love to talk about today. See, what's amazing is on one side of the coin, you have a culture that is counting on you to be a fool. And the other side is a God who's inviting you to be wise. To be wise with what has been given to you. And yet the reality is, at least this is true for me, that when it comes to my finances, there are many times, certainly not all, but there are many times when it comes to my finances that I live more like a practical atheist. That, that I love to, to ask God you know, for money and to provide all my needs, but when it comes to actually how I use those resources and what I do with them in my life, there are some days where you'd think that I was just a practical atheist, that I sort of believed, you know, I, it was all on my own. This is mine to manage. These are my resources. Meanwhile, we have a God who's lavished wisdom, who's lavished an invitation to, to walk in the ways of wisdom when it comes to our resources, and who has actually lavished our lives, as we're going to look at in a minute, with his goodness and provision in our lives. And yet still, I vote with my wallet to give my resources so many times to a culture that wants me to be a fool. And so what we're committing ourselves to do over the course of these next couple weeks is to be wise, is to walk in the ways of God's wisdom when it comes to our resources, to apply the the biblical, practical wisdom, deeply spiritual, incredibly practical wisdom that God has for our lives, to be a part of the Dave Ramsey event. He's going to get down to the nuts and bolts coming up in two weeks, as Jeannie mentioned. I would highly recommend you signing up for that. It is time for you and I to start walking in the ways of wisdom when it comes to our resources. Because our hope is, the reason we're talking about this for this month, our hope is that you will look back in your life at some point and say, you know, it was March of 2012 that I finally turned a corner in my finances. You know, it was, it was back in March of 2012, I had heard this, and I had done this, and I went to this, and I began to listen to this wisdom of God, I began to apply it to my life, and it literally changed things. And it literally changed me. We are hoping for nothing less. And so we're going to teach from God's word, and then we're going to do the hard work that it invites us into so that we can experience the wisdom and the freedom that God offers us when it comes to our finances. So this weekend, we're going to look at a story, a very specific story found in the Bible. It's a parable, one of the teachings of Jesus. Now, here's the thing about this. These parables are stories that Jesus would teach, and some of them, if not many of them, were meant to evoke. They were meant to challenge. They were meant to mix things up a little bit for us. They were not meant to be always directly literal. And so we're going to look at a parable that that has kind of two stories being told through this story. There's a story about who we are, and we'll find ourselves in one or two of the characters in the story. And then there's a story about who God is, and we'll find that in the story as well. I just want to say in the beginning, these are never meant to be direct, literal, you know, God is always this and we are always that. Does that make sense? Can we kind of understand that? And this story is actually like, are you familiar with the story of the prodigal son? You heard this story? This is kind of like one of those stories where, you know, you think it's about the son, but really at the end of the day, that story is about who? It's about the father. It's about the father and his patient, forgiving love. 
And so this is one of those kind of stories where you think it's all about this, but really Jesus is pulling back the curtain to reveal a truth about God that really we have to face this weekend before we move any further into opening up our resources and exploring our finances and walking in the ways of wisdom with God. So if you would, would you grab a Bible and open to Matthew 25? Matthew 25. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one of the blue Bibles right in front of you. It's on page 915, Matthew 25. And here's something we say every week, but just so you know, because this totally might be you, uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, this blue Bible that you're holding is now yours. We just believe in God's word that much. We believe that this wisdom and these principles and this story is so captivating and transforming that it's an opportunity, not an obligation for us, an opportunity for us to know God more and to know ourselves even better. So if you don't own a Bible, you get to steal a Bible from church today. Tell your friends, what they talk about at church? They talked about money. Oh yeah, what'd you do? I stole a Bible. That's going to be a great story, okay? So you can do that. We're going to open up to Matthew 25, 14. Let me give you a little context of this parable, this story that Jesus is teaching. This is just days before Jesus' betrayal and arrest and ultimate crucifixion and resurrection. So as we are now about a month or so out from Easter, this is just days before that actual event in the life of Jesus. So you can imagine the things that he's teaching, the stories that he takes time to tell, have some pretty significant weight, if not urgency to them. Would you not agree? I mean, can you imagine? Jesus knows what is coming. He knows that the hour is drawing close, that this is actually it. And so he's imploring his disciples, his followers, to those who are gathered around him to understand what life would be like once he was gone, what life would be like in the kingdom of God, in the way of God. And so he, he gives them a story, and it's in the midst of a string of stories that Jesus, again, is teaching us about what, how we live our lives here on earth once he has actually left earth, and we, that's the days we find ourselves in today. This parable has gone by several different names. It's uh, referred to as the parable of the talents. And uh, just so you know, that's not, like when I heard that the first time, I was like, I, I thought like America's got talent, like is it that kind of talent? It's not, it's one of those cultural things where a talent was a measurement of money in Jesus' day. It's also referred to in Luke as the parable of the minas. That's another measurement of money uh, in that day that really doesn't have direct application. So for the sake of our understanding, in fact, the translation we're going to read from today calls it the par- uh, uses bags of gold, the parable of the bags of gold. So they just kind of skipped over all the, the cultural references and just wanted you to imagine a big sack of money with a dollar sign on it. Is basically what they did. So here's really what a talent is so that you understand when we're reading this context. One talent is about roughly equivalent to just under half a million dollars in our currency today. Okay? Give or take like 2,000 years of inflation and our current economic realities. Right? So about half a million dollars. So when we get into the story here in a second, keep that figure in mind because it's very significant. And let's look for the sort of two stories that are being told through this one story that Jesus told. All right, Matthew 25, verse 14. We'll put it up on the screens as well. Jesus says this. He says again because he was teaching. Let me, I'm sorry, I need to pause again. Uh, there's going to come moments when, I, when I'm reading from God's word and I pause. It's not because I'm having a moment. It's because I want you to speak in, okay? So if I pause significantly, you, speak, you hop in and speak. Does that make sense? All right, good. All right, so when I pause, you can speak, all right? So again, because Jesus had been telling several stories about what life is like in the kingdom of God, again, it will be like a man going on a journey. Now, we don't, Jesus doesn't go into great details, and you got to love Jesus. He starts with saying, there's a guy, and he's going somewhere. All right, Jesus, keep going. So who called his what? 
servants. Now, that's very important. Underline that, even in the Blue Bible. It's not your Bible, still underline it. Someone else will read it some other day. He called his servants, and what's the next word? And entrusted. Underline and circle that word as well. So there's a man, now look, this is all in one sentence. There's a man who's going on a journey who called his servants, or the original translation, his slaves. He called his slaves and entrusted his wealth to them. Okay? So now in one sentence, Jesus has already got us. Wait, what? Wait, what? Who does that? What is that? What Jesus is speaking to, and even in his culture, was a, a, a culture that was familiar with slavery. It was very familiar with. There, in fact, were probably people around when Jesus was teaching who had been slaves at one point or who were currently slaves. There were people who gathered around who had heard Jesus' teaching who owned slaves. And so Jesus is speaking into a way of understanding that people completely connected with, and he, but he kind of turns it on its head. He says, all right, here's what happened. Uh, there's a guy. He clearly has some resources because he has slaves and he has wealth. He gets his slaves. He entrusts his wealth to them. Now listen, remember, going back to one talent or bag of gold equaling almost half a million dollars. To one, he gave five bags of gold. Keith, what's the number of that? That's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah, that's like two and a half million dollars if my math holds. That's a lot of money. Is that right, Keith? All right, good. Good. It's a lot of money. That's right. It's a lot of money. Two and a half million dollars. Who did he give it to? Slave. Not his financial advisor, not his bookie. He gave it to his slave. He gave five bags of gold, two and a half million dollars. And to another, he gave two bags. And to another, one, each according to his ability. Now, this master clearly knew his slaves, his servants. He knew them well, what they were capable of, what they could handle. So to one, he gives significant five bags, then two bags, then one. Even still, you get one bag of gold, half a million dollars. Are you complaining at that point? Can you imagine? I mean, that literally, I think about it all the time. Maybe you don't. Like, I'll ask you, like, what would you do if you went? Like, even like the lame game shows where you win $50,000. I'm like, what would you do with $50,000? Can you imagine if someone today after church and you walked out said, hey, thanks so much for coming. Here's this bag of comically marked dollar bill gold. We want to give it to you. It's half a million dollars. Here you go. And as Jesus gives in this story, no clear instructions. No clear instructions. He entrusted his wealth to slaves and to servants. What would you do first? Where would you go first with half a million dollars? With two and a half million dollars. And what would, think about what their former occupation was. Slave, servant. And now they are holding way more money than they would ever see in five lifetimes. It's been entrusted to them. Story gets interesting. It says that, verse 16, the man who had received five bags of gold went what? At once, went at once, at once. He went and put his money to work and gained five bags more. That's, he did a good job. Doesn't tell us exactly how he does. Jesus doesn't go into those details. But the implication is he went to work at once with what had been entrusted to him and actually doubled what was given to him. We don't know how he did it, but he did it. In fact, this happens again. So also the one with two bags gained two more. Verse 18, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. That doesn't seem like a very wise strategy. Although in today's economy, maybe burying your money is not a bad idea. Maybe we need to pay more attention to that. He buried the money. 
So two different responses. Verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So there was accountability. There was a settling of accounts. This wasn't just a reality show experiment, right? He wanted his money back. He wanted to see what they had done with his money. The man who received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. Verse 21, again, we're getting a glimpse into the heart of God right here. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Have you ever heard that phrase used before? This is where it came from. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, and this is very important, please underline this. Come and share your master's happiness. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, just a question for you. We'll continue on the text in a second. Why is he happy? Is he happy because he made more money? Is he happy because he had two and a half million and now it's five million? I don't think so. This guy has enough money to be able to give his money to slaves to see what they'll do with it. I don't think money is what makes him happy. Do you know what I think makes him happy, what Jesus is implying in this story? That he's so happy that this slave, this servant, did well with what was entrusted to him. Did well with what was entrusted to him. And it clearly was entrusted to him because there's no directions given. So, very good moment here. Come share in your master's happiness. Verse 22, the man with two bags of gold came also and said, Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. Verse 23, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's what? Happiness. Come and share in your master's happiness. So you have to imagine at this point in the story, everyone who's listening is going, yeah, this is a great story. So this is what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to get stuff. Yeah, let's do this. Where's my bag of gold? You know, you can kind of imagine people like, yeah, this is great. And if you're in the story, you're about to pop the confetti gun. Everything's really exciting. And then, wah, 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 character three comes along. Verse 24, the man who received one bag of gold came and said this, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Hit pause right there. This is a sort of agricultural, cultural metaphor, reference here. But you can read between the lines, can't you? What he says is, Master, I, I knew that you were, you were a tough guy. You were a hard man, a hard businessman. And that phrase, it's an ancient phrase, sort of harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not planted seeds, that's a reference to you, sort of, you take things that aren't really yours, that you sort of have made your money through um, not-so-honorable ways, that there have been more than a few backdoor, under-the-table dealings. Basically, what he's saying is, Master, I know you come from Chicago. I'm familiar. I know where you're from. I know you got a guy, all right? That's basically what he's saying. Now, what Jesus is teaching us in this passage is not that that is what is true of God, but that is what is true of our assumptions oftentimes of God. What Jesus is teaching us, who knew, no one knows the Father greater than Jesus, is saying, isn't it so like us 
that we have our assumptions about God and our most tightly held, clenched fist assumptions are usually around our resources. Our most tightly gripped assumptions about God come down to our finances so many times. And that's why we end up living like practical atheists. And so that's what this guy does. I knew you were a hard man. I, I kind of knew, so I buried, <laughs> you can imagine, and then he goes, he goes on in verse, end of verse 25, see, here's what belongs to you. That's a very striking moment. I mean, because there's still probably like dirt and twigs on the side of the bag, and he kind of drops it in front of the master's presence. Can you feel the weight of the moment? These guys doubled each of their resources that had been entrusted to them. This guy just returns exactly what was given to him. Verse 26, the story gets a little more intense. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. <laughs> he goes on. This is a very kind of good fellow's moment here. Oh, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would at least have received some interest on it. You, should, you open up a checking account with little puppy dog checkbooks and I would have had way more than what you've brought back to me in this moment. Verse 28, take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. Now, can you imagine if you're that guy, the first servant, who not only did five, was given five and turned it into five, but now you've been given one more. If you're that guy, you're like, woohoo! Oops, sorry, too soon. You know, because you, real, you realize, like, this is, the tables have turned. Now, look at this. This is what Jesus says. For those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever heard that phrase before? This is where that comes from, all from the same story. That's a very hard turn that Jesus makes at the end because this is a parable that is meant to evoke. It is meant to catch us by surprise. It is meant to reveal not only truth about us, but about God. And what Jesus here is doing in this profound parable is shining a light on all of our assumptions about the character of God, specifically when it comes to our resources. He's shining a light on the assumption we have that what we have is ours. We earned it. We made it. It's ours to spend. That's when I was 15 in that first paycheck, that was my strategy. That was the only plan I had. Make money, spend money, and hopefully in that order, right? That, that was the plan. Jesus is shining a light even on that. But more, specific, more specifically, more significantly, he is shining a light on the fact that I think when you read this parable, because the ending is so stark and so harsh, because the celebration for these first two servants is so great, so oftentimes what you can miss in this parable is what we oftentimes have missed in the story of the prodigal son, is what Jesus is actually shining a light on, is the goodness and the generosity of God. Because what master in their right mind entrusts slaves and servants with millions and millions of dollars? What master in their right mind would call up ordinary everyday people like you and me and lavish blessing and provision on our lives? What Jesus is really shining a light on is a God who is already good and who longs for us to share in his happiness 
to share in His joy and His delight when His children do well with what has been entrusted to them. Respond to His goodness by doing everything we can out of gratitude to bless God, to live well. I mean, it's a a fascinating thing when you really peel it back that just like our lives, this story is not so much about specific details that are financial. They're spiritual. And if you were to boil down all of our uh, stress and anxiety and all the sort of bottom line of all of our financial realities, wherever you may be at, my sense is, and this is why I'm a pastor and we're in a church talking about this, my sense is those issues are way less financial and way more spiritual. I think, ultimately, what Jesus is teaching, what God is longing to speak into and reveal in us, is that we have trouble seeing God as good and recognizing the gifts that he's already put into our lives. And because of that, we sort of run our own plan. We run our lives into the wall. We sort of do whatever. We live as practical atheists when it comes to our finances. Because we haven't ever stopped to think, wait a second, wait a second. Maybe this is actually a gift from God. Maybe he's actually good. And maybe, like the master in the story, he expects something of me. He actually expects me to do something with what he's entrusted to me. And in so doing, I share in his happiness, his delight. What we have to do is push through our assumptions that God is trying to take something from you or keep something from you when it comes to money. That's why it's so tense. That's why you feel a little tense talking about money in church. It's because all of us at some level have some assumption about God that he's trying to keep something or get something from us. You know what the truth is? As we see through this story, as we see again and again and again throughout Scripture, God is not trying to get something from you. He has something for you. Look, the master in this story did not need more money. What he was after was seeing people in his house do well with what had been entrusted to them. Respond to his generosity and goodness with gratitude and good deeds. That's what is really going on. God's not trying to get something from you. He actually has something for you. He has wisdom for you. That's why we're spending this month looking at God's word, diving in deep. Because he has wisdom for you that is practical, but ultimately spiritual. And it deals with your trust in him. He has freedom for you. And that concept, those two words, financial and freedom, seems so far away from you right now in your life. He has freedom for you. He has provision for you. He can provide for you. He has provided for you. Even though it may have been hard growing up and it was tough growing up, and that's very, very real, you're still here. You're still here. God has never stopped being faithful. He has provision for you. It may not always look like what you want, but it will always be what you need. He has provision for you. He has courage for you. 
And you are going to be faced with choices over the next couple weeks as we dive into this series together to literally break some patterns that you were either taught or that you watched or that you built up over the years when it comes to your finances and to trust God finally with them. God has courage for you to do that, finally to do that, to actually get it right, to look back on March of 2012 and say, that was a time that I finally took courage and took the wheel of my finances and began to bless God and honor him with what he had given to me. He has already been good to you. He has already been good to you. And so oftentimes what we do in our lives is we ask God to, to sort of be good to us, to, to bless us, and God's going, okay, 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 I can do that. I can do that. I'm God. What I want you to see is that I already have. I already have blessed you. I have already been so good to you. I am a generous God who has lavished blessing upon you. The writer James says that God, every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father of heavenly lights, that he is lavishing his love out upon us. God's saying, I, I, I can, I will be good to you. But before we can move any further into that, do you recognize that I already have been? that I always have been good to you. You know, Jean and I have um, never seen that more clearly than we have in the last couple of years. I was thinking back through this last week. So it's really interesting. Is exactly two years ago, exactly two years ago, we moved back to Chicago to start Soul City Church. We were living in Atlanta at the time, and... Uh, it was so funny to go back and so good for me to go back and, and, and make an account of how good God has been to us. How hard it has been, but how good God has been. And some of you may have heard the story, and so if, you, know, you can kind of check out or, or stay checked out right now wherever you're at. But it was really interesting just for me to remember the details that led up to everything that happened exactly two years ago when we moved back to Chicago. As I said, we were living in Atlanta at the time, and we'd rented out our house down there and, and uh, had rented signed papers for a place up here. And two weeks before we moved, we had gone down for one last trip to Orlando to where some of our best friends are at. We were at Disney World, okay? So we are just gotten to Disney World. Everything's kind of in motion, you know, for our lives to move from there to here and all that. And I get a call from the, the agent who had helped us find our place here in Chicago. And I want you to understand... I'm only steps into Main Street. I'm not even to the point where you put the penny in and you get the souvenir coin after they crank it. I'm not even there into Disney World yet. And I get a call on my phone that's the agent says, hey, I need to let you know something real quick. Um, they rented your place out, actually, from underneath you. I'm like, you can't do that, right? You can't do that. We signed papers. There's a deposit check. He's like, I know. He's like, but they found someone who didn't have a dog and they could give him a deposit even sooner. I'm like, but we signed papers. And I'm starting to like raise my voice. You know, we're in Disney World. The kids are all there. He's like, I know, I know, I know. But, you know, this is kind of how it goes. That's Chicago. I was like, that's why we're starting a church there. Like, you can't, it's, you can't do that. That's not fair. And so here I am in the happiest place on earth, losing my mind. I mean, going to unbelievable levels of fear and anxiety. Like, hey, for real, we have nowhere to live in two weeks. And I'm at Disney World. Like, what are we going to do? 
And there are people moving into our house in Atlanta in two weeks. And it might be awkward if we were to just stay. So, you know, I try and be present the best I can, but I'm honestly going to the place of a practical atheist. God, I have to fix this for you. Because this, this, here we go, God, it's, not, it's all falling. I have, I have to take care of this now for you. Thank you very much. And so in that place of anxiety and fear, I go to where any person might go to that night when we got home. I went to Craigslist. <laughs> it's not, a, not the best choice in the world. And we just started looking at places and going, okay, so here's our life now. We're going to move into a house that we don't actually get to see before we move there. Okay. God, you better be good. You better be good. And so we found a place, and we, it wasn't even for rent. It was for sale. And we just kept calling her the next day. But maybe you could rent it. You know, we just kept asking, well, what if you did rent it? What would you rent it for? <laughs> Let's just say hypothetically. We just kept so... And I'd love to say it's because I was a smooth talker. God made a way. And many of you have actually been in that house. In fact, this church was started in that very house, in that family room. A place we didn't even know about two weeks before we moved here. A place that God, in His goodness, could provide. And if you've heard Jeannie's story, and she's mentioned here before at Soul City, I mean that she had a list for God of how He needed to be good in wherever it was that we were going to live like down to stainless steel appliances. (laughs) And he was good and he was faithful and that's very clearly good to us. We entered into a season in that time of our life two years ago. And I remember it was exactly two years ago. We had left jobs. We had left paychecks. I longed for that first paycheck again. Like we had left all that and said, God, we trust that the work that you are calling us to, you will be good because you have been good. And you will provide for us. And we, when we did our taxes for 2010, I mean, we literally just looked at the numbers and laughed. How is it, God, that you carried us through? How is it that you provided for us every month down to the wire? You grew our faith by showing us your goodness, God, every time. And it, was it all the things that we wanted or the way that we wanted? No. I would have liked to have known where we were living at least a month before we moved into it. I'd have liked to have seen out, sure. But it was so much better for us. God's goodness grew our faith. And in so doing, here we are, you know, having left paychecks and all that kind of stuff, which is very important. And we were giving more to God than we'd ever given in our lives. We felt so compelled. And this, again, it's not about us. It's about when we got a glimpse of God's goodness in our life. We, we, we were making significantly less than we'd ever made in our lives and yet giving significantly more because we got to a point where we said, well, God, you brought us this far. I guess we have to kind of be all in. I, I, why, not, why not just take you completely at your word and, and trust you with our resources down to the dime? And I'm telling you, what, when we began to realize that God was already good and that he had already provided And what he had for us was more peace, more courage, more faith, that he actually had something for us in that time, in that season, and in every season. It changed the dynamic for us. And I think if we're going to move forward together as a church and walk into these next couple weeks of talking honestly about our finances, we have to settle 
some pretty fundamental questions. You have to answer some pretty fundamental questions about the goodness and the character of God. First question is this, and I want you to write this down, because these are questions you need to answer outside of church, so you don't give like token churchy answers, okay? I want you to write this down. I want you to think about this today at lunch. Think about this this afternoon, this evening. First question is this, and we had to answer this question with even the little, the the one-tenth of one talent we had. Do I believe it's really God's money? You just need to sit with that question. I know you don't have a lot. You may not have a lot. You may have a ton, more than you've ever had. You may be making more than you've ever made before in your life. The question for you to answer, no matter where you're at, no matter how many zeros are behind it, no matter how many talents it may be, do you really believe that it's really God's money that he is entrusting to you? That's the question that you have to wrestle with that each of these servants wrestled with and responded to differently. Next question, and this is the one where that third servant could not answer the question. Do you believe that God is really good? We can, we can talk strategies, we can talk financial strategies, we can do all this stuff. All that stuff is great. But for you to actually be transformed by God and to grow and to have this be a time where you turn around in your life and say, God grew me like never before, you have to answer that question. Do I believe God is really good? In other words, can he be trusted? And then, if you answer yes to both of those questions, then the third question is, and this is where it gets really fun, what does God really want me to do with his money? What does God really want me to do with his money? What would it look like for me to submit my finances to God and stop living like a practical atheist and begin to say, no, God, I believe this is actually yours that you have entrusted to me, a servant, a slave, someone who's not worthy, but you and your goodness and generosity have entrusted these resources to me. And God, I believe that you're good. So what do you want to do together? God, how, how, how is it you want me to work to get out of debt so I can actually be financially free? God, how is it that you want me to be part of giving back to you as a discipline and a joy to trust you with my resources? God, how is it that I can extend your work here in this church and around the world? God, how is it that I can learn to live more simply? What do you want me to do with your money, God? That's where it gets really fun. And that's what we're going to explore over the next couple weeks in the Dave Ramsey Seminar. But these are questions you have to answer before we get into any of that. We're so serious about this stuff. We're so serious about getting honest with God about our resources and what it is that we really believe that when you leave today, you're going to get a little envelope like this. And inside is a ledger that we've created. And we're going to ask you over the course of this next couple days, as long as it takes to fill this up, to any time you spend money to keep the receipt. We don't even give receipts anymore actually ask for a paper receipt, stuff it in this envelope, and write down how and where you spent your money. It's all on the ledger. It's very simple. And just do it till you fill it up, total it up, and then just spend. All we're asking is you spend five minutes looking at it and going, what does this teach me about what I really believe about whose money this really is? What does this teach me about what I need and what I don't really need? God, how is it that you would want me to use these resources in a way that more honors you and has more for me in the process to grow me and what you're doing in my life. I'm going to invite the band to come up right now. And, you know, we could keep talking money. But again, as I said, I think these 
these struggles, these issues, these anxieties, these fears, these opportunities for growth are far more spiritual than they are financial. And so what we thought would be appropriate for us to do, and I'm so glad that we're doing this this morning, is we want to spend a few moments centering our heart on the goodness of God demonstrated to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. As Jeannie mentioned earlier, we're a church built on the fact that God is inviting every one of us into a transforming relationship with his son Jesus. And so every month we take a moment to stop, to remember, to reflect, and to celebrate on how it is that that's even possible. And that is through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, we can keep talking money, but this is spiritual stuff that we're talking about. And so what we're going to do for the next few moments is we're going to come to what is referred to as the Lord's table. And we are going to remember, as Jesus instructed his disciples to do, he gathered them together just, I mean, literally days after this teaching that we looked at. Can you imagine? Just days after this teaching, Jesus gathers his disciples together in a little upper room, and he says, I want you to know, I want you to know, because you're going to hear a lot of things. You're going to have a lot of assumptions about who God is and whether or not he's good. I want you to remember that this is my body. He took bread and he broke. He said, this is my body. Every time you break bread, you remember that God became man. He became one of us, literally flesh and bone, and that body would be broken and made available to you. And Jesus took wine. He poured it in the cup. He said, look, every time you drink this, remember me. Remember the blood that will be poured out for your sake only perfect and pure blood to ever flow through human veins, literally poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. If you ever wonder about the goodness of God, you remember my body, you remember my blood. If you ever doubt that God is capable or able to meet you where you're at, to carry you through, you remember my body, you remember my blood. You let these be living reminders to you of just how good I am and how generous my love is for you. And so we're going to have four stations up here at the front for you to come to take a piece of bread, break it off, to dip it in the cup, and to remember just how great God's love is for you. To be quiet about that. To be humbled by that. And then in a moment, to celebrate that together through worship. So let me pray for us, and we'll get into that together right now. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you're not just here to solve our financial problems. And we have a lot you care so much more about us than that. You have always cared about our heart, our relationship with you, our trust in you, our belief to whether or not you are actually good. And God, we know that you have never not demonstrated your goodness to us. We've just missed it. And so we want to stop and center our hearts and center our lives around the reality of the goodness of your love through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for meeting us in this moment. Thank you for where you're going to take us together over the next couple of weeks. We are, we are excited, God, and we choose, we choose to trust you, to follow you, to walk in your wisdom, and to allow not just our finances, but our lives to be transformed by you. Thank you, Jesus, that you made that possible. Help us to not only remember that, but to experience that and then to live that out at this moment. We pray in your name. Amen.